Well, this evening, I want to talk about uh, your journey, your journey in life, your journey in ministry, and I want to take some words out of the first two chapters of the first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14. I'm not going to read those two chapters tonight. I'm just going to read the first few verses. And then we're going to jump off and we're going to look about what it, what it takes to last on the journey, what it takes to last in life and in ministry. And I trust that this will be as equally applicable to pastors here and staff pastors as it will be to all the lay people, the wonderful lay people that are here this evening. Reading from Acts 13, beginning at verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. I said that I would talk about how to last, and I'm going to use the acronym from the word LAST, L-A-S-T, to mark my four points this evening. The first is simply, if you're going to last, you must listen. You must listen. The leaders of the church at Antioch were fasting and praying when the Spirit said to them, separate for me Barnabas and Saul to the work which I have called them. It's very interesting to look at the prologue to this because as you look at the book of Acts, you know that from the resurrection about 33 AD to 46 AD, which is where we find Acts 13, there is a 13-year period when seemingly little is going on under the waterline. I mean, there's hardly a ripple. The church has been given the task to take the gospel of the whole world, but they've scarcely done that at this point. Oh, Acts chapter 8 tells us about the first Gentile to become converted, an Ethiopian, um, um, a, a political leader who had trekked all the way across the desert up into Jerusalem and then gone home without ever knowing the word of God, probably because no one thought he was a fit candidate to hear the gospel. He was of a different ethnicity. He was of a different language. He was from a different culture. And Even though the apostles were daily preaching in the temple courts, um, nobody evidently witnessed to this man. And so he's going home not knowing who Jesus is. And that's why the Holy Spirit pulls Philip out of a revival in Samaria to go down on a desert road, the road to Gaza, and a witness to him. So he becomes converted. And then, and then you have the next thing laid in is the conversion of a family. Cornelius' family up at, uh, uh, up at the coast at Caesarea by the sea. And then you have certain men come from Cyprus and Cyrene to take the gospel to the Greek-speaking population of Antioch up north of Jerusalem by about 300 miles, one of the great cities of the ancient world. So you go from an individual to a family to a church. It's like, it's like when, when the Holy Spirit wants to build an interstate highway, he starts with a trail, and the trail becomes a path, and the path becomes a road, and the road becomes a highway, and the highway becomes the interstate. And, and in our American culture, where we want things to happen very fast, and we want to press the microwave button and get it done, we get frustrated when the Lord does something very slowly. That's the context we're finding in Acts 13. 
My parents pastored small churches. My parents were missionaries in China and Tibet. I'm the first missionary kid to ever be general superintendent of the Assemblies of God. Today our church in northwest China is a church of over 15,000 believers, but it wasn't that way back in the 30s and 40s when my parents served as missionaries there. The Lord was gradually building the blocks that would later become the foundation stones for the growth of the church. And I have a great heart for people that are serving in hard places, difficult places, where you're not, um, not, so to speak, throwing the long ball, not scoring the big touchdowns, but grounding, grinding it out on the, on the yard line, to use Ohio State football language, uh, inch by inch and yard by yard, where it's tough going. Don't be discouraged. You know, while all of that's going on, while you've got the Ethiopian eunuch being saved and Cornelius' household being saved and the Antioch church being begun, you've got Saul of Tarsus, who's who's uh, been dramatically converted, and then he disappears for a while. In fact, we know he goes into the Arabian desert for three years. As someone so aptly said of him, he went into the Arabian desert with the law, the Psalms, and the prophets in his knapsack and came back with Romans, Galatians, Ephesians in his heart and on his lips. He had morphed the Old Testament into an understanding of the dramatic nature of Christ. Christ in all, his favorite phrase, in Christ. So all that was being prepared when we come to this dramatic moment of Acts 13 and the church is listening. When you are worshiping the Lord, whether it's personally or corporately, he will speak to you. He will speak to you. He speaks through his word, he speaks through the preached word, he speaks through the testimony of others, but he also speaks in the quiet of the heart. It probably was through a prophetic word that that the Holy Spirit spoke in that occasion with these leaders. I doubt that it was an audible voice that suddenly appeared, materialized in the room. I, I personally have always wanted to hear the audible voice of God. Wouldn't that be great? Some of you may have had that experience. I've not had it. I used to be much more desirous of it when I was younger. But I subsequently learned by reading Scripture that all of those who heard the audible voice of God subsequently suffered greatly. So I didn't really need that anymore, you know. <laughs> I'll never forget a couple moments of my life, though, where the Spirit spoke in the quiet of my heart. I'd finished my doctoral work at Fuller Theological Seminary and became the first full-time campus pastor at Evangel. And I was uh, doing something I thought I would do for the rest of my life. I had been back only two months in my new assignment when worshiping the Lord in a chapel setting where a great revival was happening, I looked across the long expanse of the college chapel and saw a painting one of our students had done of Christ on the cross. And suddenly everything else in the room just sort of faded and my focus was on the cross. And I felt the Spirit say to me, George, look around here. This isn't going to be your place of ministry much longer. And I thought, Lord, how could that be? It was such a strange word, I told no one about it. Little did I realize at the time, I would only find this out months later after I became pastor of a church that had just gone through a church split and was down to 60 people in Newport Beach, California. Only found out months and months later that the week I'd had that visionary experience where the Spirit spoke to my heart that that was the week that the church had set out looking for a new pastor and had spent the week in praying and fasting before it looked at a single resume. Hearing the Spirit speak 
I've had several experiences like that in life. I'd like to say that every day I have that experience. You would think as general superintendent, every day God would just talk to me audibly. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? But um, when I was, I'd finished 17 years of pastoring, and uh, I'm sitting on a platform at the Southern California District, which is my home district, and they're balloting on the assistant superintendent. And all of a sudden, my name pops up on the list of nominees, and I said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be assistant anything. <laughs> That's how much hubris, I guess, I had. And while I, was, while I was thinking on that thought, I felt the Spirit say to me, George Wood, you have been a good leader, but you're a lousy servant. I want you to shine Ray Rachel's shoes for a while. Ray had just been elected superintendent. And so that's, I stepped into that role, listening to the Spirit. So, you know, the Spirit, when he speaks, will tell us so very often to leave our comfort zones, to leave our places of security, to go from where we were secure to where we were insecure. That certainly happens with Paul and Barnabas. They were secure at Antioch. It was, the, at that time, the largest Christian church in the world. And they were being called to leave that all behind and go on a venture they knew not where because the Spirit had spoken. That's what happened 100 years ago in Hot Springs. The Spirit spoke to a group of people and said, I want you to found a movement that will engage in this great commission, in this task, not only to reach this country and reach all the communities in this country, but to reach this world for Jesus Christ. And they were listening to the Spirit. It is when we get caught up with our own overemphasis upon our techniques and upon our how-to-do-it lists and all that is important and I'm as left-brained as anybody in the room but, but there has to be an open window in our heart to keep listening to what the Spirit wants. The Spirit will take us to places we would not thought of going, to people we would not have thought of being with when we open our hearts to the Spirit. So L for listen, that's fundamental for the journey. A is for assess, assess. What, what is your gift? What, what, what in you does the Lord want to use? We know that assessment was going on in this first missionary journey because uh, we see some dynamics that are taking place between Barnabas and Paul. We see it, first of all, when Barnabas comes to Antioch, he's sent by the Jerusalem church because they heard that up at Antioch they were eating cheeseburgers. Yes, they were. You say, how do you know that? That's not in the Bible. Well, I know that because in Acts chapter 10, Peter says, I've never eaten anything non-kosher, and a cheeseburger is non-kosher. <laughs> and Peter, when he came to Antioch, according to Galatians 4, was eating non-kosher food until he got intimidated by some of the Judaizers, and Paul said, I had to rebuke him to his face. So at Antioch, they were doing things differently. They were, they were, and, and isn't, one of the reasons why the Assemblies of God is grown is that we have flexed with culture. We flexed with music. You know, I was at the last general council. I'm sitting, I'm not, I'm actually standing during the worship service, and there was one song the worship team sang that I just absolutely, I was grinding my teeth. So it wasn't my kind of song. And I look at my 16-year-old grandson standing next to me, both hands up in the air, and I thought, you know what? I'll trade my preference for his passion. I want young people in this church. So 
So we flexed. The early church was flexing. I mean, the Jerusalem church was tearing their hair out because some of the people at Antioch were just not behaving and doing stuff like they were down in Jerusalem. But that's okay. Viva la différence. And it says that when, when, Paul, when Barnabas came to Antioch, he encouraged the people. Then something very dramatic happens in Acts chapter 11. Paul goes, or I mean Barnabas goes to Tarsus, from Antioch of Syria to Tarsus. I've taken that trip by bus. It's, I think, around 200 miles. You got up over the Taurus Mountains to get to, Tar- to Tarsus. And it was no easy thing by foot or by pack animal. And the text of Acts says that Barnabas looked for Paul. I mean, he searched for him. He had in mind that he wanted this. Why did he want him? And, and the text then says when he brought him to Antioch, they taught a large company of believers. And I, my eye caught the change in verbs. When Barnabas was there, he encouraged. When Paul was there, they taught. And that's why Barnabas went looking for him because Barnabas knew, the, I, don't have the, I don't have the intellectual formation or the deep knowledge of Scripture that Paul has. After all, Paul, we know, was educated under Gamaliel, which still today in Judaism is recognized as one of the great rabbis of the first century. Paul was his stellar student. And Barnabas said, I need some intellectual heft. I need some ability, some person who knows the Scriptures better than I, who can talk to folk and teach them about this way of Christ. So Barnabas had assessed himself And guess what? The church kept growing. And then what happens next is when they're named in Acts 13, Barnabas is number one and Paul is number five. But by the time they get through their first stop in their itinerary through the island of Cyprus, it's no longer Barnabas and Paul. It's Paul and his company. They have switched roles. This is equivalent to a senior pastor of a large church telling the young associate pastor, you know what, I think you're better equipped at, being, at leading this church than me. Let's switch jobs. I'm not suggesting that happen. Don't anybody get nervous, okay? <laughs> young pastors, do you wait your turn, you know. But that was that dramatic. It was that dramatic. I think anyone that is, God uses in life has a deep sense of why me? I've been, I've been all my life been plagued with an inferiority complex. There's one of my best friends said to me, George, you don't have an inferiority complex. You're just inferior. With friends like that, who needs enemies, you know? But I've always, you know, always had this, when I stand up to speak, this kind of in the pit of my stomach, like, wow, how can I do this? And uh, when, I, when, I, when I was getting ready to take this church out in California, one of my great heroes and mentors, Dr. Ward Williams, who was academic dean at Evangel, said to me, George, let me tell you a story. And he told me the story of one of the pastors in the AG who was, who really led the first megachurch in the AG. And he began doing seminars where people would come and pastors and lay people would come attend his annual seminar. And he would just pump everything that he and his church were doing into them. He noticed after several years that he was hearing train wreck stories of people that tried what they were doing back into their local situation without any modification, and they were crashing and burning. And so the next time that he had a seminar, he said, 
While you're here this week, learn everything that you want to learn. But when you go home, do not build on my strengths. Do not build upon the strengths of this church. Build on your own strengths. And Dr. Williams looked at me and he said, George, when you go out there, don't build on somebody else's strengths. Build on your own strengths. He was calling for me to assess. That was very difficult for me because uh, I, I wasn't sure I had any strengths. But I, finally I came to the conclusion that there were only two strengths that I had in ministry and one was teaching and the other was leadership and that I should focus on that and find people whom God would gather to us who had the who had other gifts so that the full panoply of what God wanted done in his church insecure leaders now I speak to pastors insecure leaders always try to keep people under their thumb and do not release ministry because they don't trust people because they're afraid of being displaced but secure leaders are able to serve alongside others and recognize the multiplicity of giftings that God puts in his church an assessment helps us to last on the journey. It means we don't feel guilty if we can't do it all and if we can't be the jack of all trades. Oh, granted, when the church was small, I did everything, including the janitorial work. But as time went along, the Lord brought people who could fill in what I lacked. Third thing on the journey is step by step. Step by step. That's what the S stands for. The Lord leads us incrementally. Uh, There's a portion of the Psalms that says his word is a lamp unto our feet. And and, and we're thinking here of a little biblical oil lamp with a wick, just a small lamp. I'd prefer that he use a searchlight. (laughs) You know that it shines a few hundred yards down the road, but inevitably the light that he provides is only a foot or two ahead of our next step. And day by day, we're called to follow the Lord, step by step. I I saw this in a dramatic way when I stood with a a group of missionaries and Stan, uh, Ann's husband, was with me on that trip. We stood at the harbor in Seleucia How many years ago was that? 2007, 2008, somewhere around in there. Seleucia was the port harbor for Antioch, which was about 15 miles inland. Come down the Orientes River, and you're at Seleucia, the port city. We actually, they've actually discovered the harbor, the the stone pilings in the the Seleucian harbor. So with a group of of, uh, missionaries and scholars, just a small handful of us, we stood there that day. And I had a very dramatic experience that day because, you know, I I think I'm a fairly decent student of the book of Acts. I've written a college textbook on the book of Acts. But there was something that day that I saw that I never saw before, even though I'd written the textbook. And that is the direction they went from Seleucia. We know from Acts 13 and 14 that where they ended up was on the Anatolian uh, plain, on the 4,000-foot plateau that stretches across the central peninsula mainland of of Turkey. Uh, but But that is to the northwest from Seleucia. Instead, they headed southwest to Cyprus. And I thought, as I stood there, why did they do that? They don't, they don't, they don't end up there. Why are they going there? And I, I, I finally came to the conclusion, I was standing there, they, they must not have had a five-year plan. 
I don't know how they did that, you know. Because I, I mean, I've planned all my life. I'm very programmed. But they evidently were open-ended. And, and evidently they were looking at the ships that were sailing that day and said, you know what, there's one going to Cyprus, so let's get on that. And Barnabas said, yeah, 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 let's go to Cyprus because that's my home island and I know people there. So not only was it nearby to the southwest, but it was familiar territory. And, and, and we know that there was already a Christian community there because there were men from Cyprus who had been on the day of Pentecost and there were men of Cyprus who had taken the gospel up to Antioch. So there was a Christian community already in Cyprus. So they start easy. And not only that, when they get on the island, Paul has an opportunity to witness to the governor, the Roman proconsul. Sergius Paulus, but there was a sorcerer, uh, a cultic person, who attempts to prevent his witness to Sergius Paulus, the proconsul. So what does the apostle Paul do? He does the only non-restorative or punitive miracle in the book of Acts. He inflicts blindness on Elimaeus. Now why does he do that? Well, that's how he came to Christ. He was struck blind. And he said, it worked for me, it could work for you. <laughs> you know? You know, I, I think in ministry, sometimes we get it all wrong. We start with, all, you know, what's the hardest thing to do? Pick the low-hanging fruit. Start with what's near. That's how our churches, we started, we started just ministering to babies. And all of a sudden, 17 years later, from three kids when we started to 200 kids when I left in the early childhood department. We took the low-hanging fruit and got families, and then we kind of worked our way up as we went along. But what is, what is near you? What, you know, don't think of what is the most difficult thing you do. God will get you there step by step. He'll get you to the most difficult thing. But what, wh- where is the Lord leading you now? And what, what inspiration from the Spirit may be putting in your heart about next steps? Step by step. They did not know when they stood on the beach at Seleucia that um, they would uh, have a proconsul that was saved, that they would uh, have serious illness on the journey. I'll talk about that in a moment, that one of the team, John Mark, would leave them. Uh, They did not know, Paul did not know that he would be beaten with an inch of his life or pelted with rocks. They used to say he was stoned at Lystra, and I've since the language in English changed, so I say he was pelted with rocks at Lystra. They didn't know that great miracles would occur. Some of you are slow. Uh, Of course, you don't live in Colorado or, or Oregon, so, you know, what can you say? But step by step, they just kept walking. I remember when I was a college freshman, my dorm mother wrote this in my yearbook, and it's been my favorite poem all through life. Plod on, plod on, plod on, plod on, plod on, plod on, plod on. And the second verse is plod on, plod on. It's many verses, same two words. You know, that's life. Just take one step after another, step by step. They didn't see it all. Uh, The fourth word is trust, L-A-S-T, listen, assess, step by step, and trust, trust. Why do I say trust of this missionary journey? Well, it was all about trusting the Lord's leading, that the Spirit who spoke to them to go would help them know what their next steps were. And there were some unusual things that happened 
on this first missionary journey. They go, they land in Cyprus on the northeast part. And Cyprus is an island that diagonally would cut across about 140 miles. And they walk through Cyprus, 140 miles, and they get to the southwest place. And there, they're out of walking room. And there is another harbor. And so they say, well, let's go to Perga. And so they go north up to Perga. Now, I'm going to put some supposition together here, and you can maybe agree with me, maybe not agree with me, but that's okay. The question arises as to why John Mark left them. We know that at Perga, he peeled off from his cousin Barnabas, and he peeled off from Paul. So the question is, why did he leave? And there's perhaps a logical reason that Barnabas was his cousin, and Barnabas was no longer in the lead. By the time they walked through Cyprus, Barnabas' home island, it's Paul and his company. So there could have been just a little resentment there. I don't know. You know, uh, what did the Lord put me in the ministry for if not to help my relatives? You know, so that also was supposed to be humorous. Uh, uh, so, so anyway, John Mark had resented that just a little bit. I don't know. But there's also something that, that I saw at Perga that helped me understand a little bit of what could have happened. If you stand at Perga, you're in a very, you're, you're at sea level. It is extremely hot during the summer. And in the biblical period, in the New Testament period, it was known as a place where one could pick up malarial-like symptoms. You would get very, very, very sick in that kind of swampland area of near the coast. But just 30 miles away, when you're standing at Perga, if you just look directly north, Rising, rising in the distance is the, is, the, is the climb up to the Anatolian highlands. And we know from a non-biblical accounts of the first century that often when people got sick down on the lowlands, they would try to get up into the highlands to get rid of their fever where the air was cooler, temperature more commodious and more health restorative. Paul, when he writes the Galatians, which perhaps most likely, were the churches that were founded on this first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14. When he writes to Galatians, Paul says, you know that it was out of sickness I first preached the gospel to you. In fact, you would have torn out your eyes for me, which suggests either had bad eyesight or he was having migraine headaches or he was really sicker than a dog that was affecting him in his eyes and in his head. So he says, you know that it was out of sickness. So if that is the case, and if Paul gets sick at Perga, and Paul says, you know what, I am not going back to Antioch. We're not done here yet. I see the highlands in the distance. We're going to walk 30 miles. Then we're going to go up and cross rivers, and we're going to be in danger of robbers and bandits and all the things he talks about later to the Corinthians that he'd been in danger of. We're going to get up there, and I'm going to get better on the highlands. We're going to find people to witness Jesus about. And John Mark said, you know what, my cousin is no longer in the lead. I'm talking to a raving maniac here who's sick. He wants to go further up and press up. This is insane. This, this is no, this, I didn't buy into this. This is not the kind of thing I bought into. So I am going home. And John Mark leaves. And Paul has to trust at this moment in the inner gyroscope that the Spirit is saying to him, get up there. And, and he gets up there and he's kicked out of synagogue after synagogue. Antioch of 
Pisidia, where he preaches the great sermon in Acts 13. Then he goes to uh, Iconium and then kicked out of there and then to Lystra. And at Lystra, this remarkable miracle occurs that the man who was born lame is healed. And then the next, practically the next day, uh, Paul is set upon and stoned within an inch of his life and courageously gets back up and goes into the very city where he'd almost died. And then goes on to Derby, and then backtracks to all the cities he'd been kicked out of before he finally gets back to Antioch. It's an amazing thing, just amazing to watch that itinerary unfold. Hundreds of miles he's walking. And all the time he's having to trust. Trust in the good days. Trust in the bad days. Trust when a man who is born lame is healed. And trust in God when there is no magical protection. You would think that after a great miracle, like a man being healed lame from birth, that the Lord would create a plexiglass shield around the Apostle Paul so that when people are throwing rocks at him, they fall harmlessly at his feet because there's an invisible wall or the rocks are turned into marshmallows. But often bad things happen after good days. And you just have to trust. Just have to trust. I had a... The first missionary journey takes place in what we know today is primarily central eastern Turkey. Not all the way east, but more center east. Um, The churches that are described in Revelation 2 and 3 happen in western Turkey. And a number of years ago, I had an opportunity, and I close with this. I had an opportunity to visit that part of the world. It was my first time, and we had, we had, uh, our first stop was in Izmir, uh, which is ancient Smyrna. There's not much archaeological remains at uh, Smyrna, but we saw early in the morning after leaving the hotel, we saw the remains, and then headed out uh, east towards Sardis. It was several hours' drive to Sardis. Beautiful countryside. Turkey is just a marvelous country. Beautiful country. Uh, And uh, lots of hills on on either side. And I was just enjoying the scenery. Uh, I was sitting by myself. My wife was in the back of the bus talking with people. And and after a while, when you see one scene through the window, you kind of seen them all. Everything was becoming alike. And I saw somebody had a USA Today they picked up at the hotel that morning, and I thought, oh, I wonder what's going on back, you know, the news. So I pick up the newspaper and begin reading it. And after a while, there's some fine print, and since I'm nearsighted, uh, sometimes I read better with my glasses off, and so I just took off my glasses, and I'm reading the paper, and, and uh, finally I get done. I, uh, I had laid my glasses on the seat next to me. I, I put my glasses back on and put the newspaper back on the seat, and I start looking out the window again, and I thought, my vision seems blurred. My vision is a little bit blurred. Uh, and a, a momentary panic went through me, and then I thought, probably jet lag, you know. And so I just need to rest a little bit. So I closed my eyes and rested a while. And then I reopened my eyes, and my vision was still blurred. Now I'm starting to get concerned, and I'm saying, what's happening here? What's happening? I thought, is it, you know, something happening inside my head? Uh, you know, something happened in my eyesight? And I thought, you know, I better... I, you know, I, is it, I wonder if it's both eyes or just one eye. So I back and forth, closed, open. Back. Finally figured out it was my right eye, and then I did a self-diagnosis. I am having a stroke in my right eye. Now, I did not know if that was medically possible. I've since found out it is. But 
But I, I am having a stroke in my, in my right eye, and I said to myself, I can't believe it. The first day of doing something I've wanted to do my whole life, I got two more weeks to go on this tour, and on the first day, I am having a stroke in my right eye. This could get worse. My whole right side could get paralyzed, get frozen. Uh, my face will go lopsided. Um, I, you know, I, the, the thing may progress. It may just kill me out here. And, and, and there's no medical place around anyway, and I wouldn't want to detain everybody if there were. I just hope that this stroke doesn't get any worse. I'm going to tough it out through the next two weeks, and if it doesn't get worse, when I get home, I'll get it examined, and I'll probably find out what was wrong, and I'll probably die, but I'm having a stroke in my right eye. So in this state, I continue all the rest of that morning until we get to Sardis. And we're going to stop at a restaurant before we see the magnificent sight at Sardis. So we stop at a restaurant. And I'm the first one off the bus. I practically stumble off the steps because I'm not seeing clearly. I go through the food line. And when I'm depressed, I do not want to be around people. It's just I want to be by myself. I want to drown myself in my own misery. That is my personality. I, want, I am depressed. So I go in the back corner of the restaurant where it's darker, and I'm hoping nobody will see me. Everybody's happy. Everybody's talking. I'm off by myself eating my food. And I look up, and there's this gal coming toward me, Dr. Debbie Gill, who teaches at our seminary. She's a Greek and Hebrew scholar, and she's always cheerful. One of those really annoying people when you are depressed, just totally annoying. She's coming to me with her big smile, and I wanted to say, Debbie, go away. Instead, she comes right up to me and she says, George. She said, Jan, that's her husband's name. Jan and I were, get, were sitting right across from you, and uh, we were the last people off the bus as we were getting uh, off, getting ready to leave our seat. We just happened to look over where you were sitting, and on the floor underneath your seat, uh, we, we saw this. Is this yours? And she hands me the lens to my right eye. What I thought was happening was not what was really going on. And there were times in this first missionary journey, and there would be in subsequent missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, there are times when your feelings will contradict your faith. And when you will think, God's abandoned you. Why did he allow this to happen? What's going on? I think of... All that happened to the Apostle Paul through this difficult experience in his life. Where do you think he began to develop the theology of suffering that we see in Romans chapter 8? Or that we see in Romans chapter 5 where he says, We rejoice in our sufferings. What masochist ever does that? We rejoice in our sufferings. doesn't have a period there. It's a comma. We rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope doesn't disappoint us. In other words, it's a four-step process. And the first part of that process is very dark and very difficult. But we rejoice. We rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces staying power, and staying power produces character. Who we are and character produces hope, and hope doesn't disappoint us. The end always is hope. Where does he, where does he when writing to the Galatians, Get the idea that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, self-control. It's when he's being hit with rocks and he doesn't get bitter and mean at the people that are hitting him. He's learning to flex 
and to say, you know what, I will not let my feelings determine how I'm going to respond to this disastrous situation. And not only that, where 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 does he get Timothy? Timothy is his most trusted aide-de-camp in his ministry. Of the 91 people Paul mentions, uh, or Luke mentions, or Paul mentions, that are associated with the Apostle Paul, Timothy is mentioned more times than all the rest. He's Paul's right-hand man. Where, Where does he pick up Timothy? From the town of Lystra, where he had nearly died. In the midst of a death in your own life, Could God be doing a new thing in your heart? When you feel at your worst, perhaps God is preparing something that is his best. When you last on the journey, when you listen, when you assess, you take it a step at a time, and when you trust. That's why the song Trust and Obey has always been so meaningful to me. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Would you join me in prayer, and the worship team is going to come. I want to pray for you because probably everyone in this room tonight is struggling with one of these areas. Listening or trying to assess yourself or others. Frustrated that things aren't going faster and you're having to go step by step trying to trust when circumstances seem uh, so different around you. Lord, we just bring our need to you tonight. All that we are, all that we hope to be, all of our successes, all of our failures, we lay at the foot of the cross tonight. We recognize that even as you called these... uh, devoted servants of yours to a journey, so you called us also to a journey. It may be a journey that is confined within the limits of our town. It may be a journey that takes us around the world. It may be a short journey, it may be a long journey, but we're all on that journey. And we need constantly to have a heart that's sensitive to you. To say with Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. To be honest about our strengths, our weaknesses, to be candid with you about that and with others. And help us, Lord, to trust you each step of the way because it is step by step. You're leading us, Lord. Leading us. So we can commit our way to you, trusting in you with all of our hearts leaning not to our own understanding, for you do direct our paths. I pray that each pastor here, each minister, each lay minister here this evening will experience that in their own heart and life. That you will in a very sweet way in these days that this wonderful Ohio Network community is gathered together. These days will be days of encouragement, motivation, challenge, instruction, edification. And that our hearts would be tender and open to you. We thank you, Jesus.